Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother, and in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I've done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of the heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindest you must do me at every place to which we come, save me, he's my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah. Abraham's wife. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask for his help. Lord God, help us to understand why you would include such a embarrassing story of our hero, Abraham. Lord, show us Christ and our need for Christ here and help us to better understand your word by your spirit's power. In Christ's name, amen. Well, at the beginning of his ministry and really all throughout his ministry, when you read about uh, John the Baptist, that last prophet of the old covenant, you see him preaching and teaching in the wilderness in Judea. And John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, was to prepare the way of the coming Messiah by calling Israel to repentance. And John, if you've read the Gospels, you will find that John was not known for his winsomeness. 
Listen to what Luke records from one of John's sermons. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Cheery John. <laughs> it seems that in the first century, Israel, Israel, that, that would be the, the Jews in Israel, uh, right around the Second Temple era, had an overestimation of what it meant to be descendants of Abraham. And we find after John's ministry that Jesus was running into this same problem with the Jews. In John chapter 8, Jesus gets into a debate with them and he tells them, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And of course they are greatly offended by this. And they say, we are the offspring of Abraham. And have never been enslaved to anyone. And there's that offspring of Abraham. We are the children of Abraham issue coming up again for Jesus. It comes up again with the church in, in, in Galatia. The, the Galatian churches. Uh, it's one of the big issues that Paul has to deal with. With the, the church in Rome. One of the most problematic and recurring debates in the early church even before the early church, so from John the Baptist all the way through the, the apostles' ministries, they're, they're dealing with this major question, who is Abraham? Who's Abraham? And that's a really important question, even today. Answer it one way, and you end up a Muslim. Answer it another way, and you end up an unbelieving Jew. But what I want to show you this morning is that if we're reading Genesis carefully, you know, we don't, we don't even have to go all the way to the New Testament. If we just read Genesis carefully, the very first book, we'll find that we can understand Abraham the same way that John the Baptist understood Abraham, the same way that Jesus understood Abraham, and the same way that Paul understood Abraham. To put Abraham in his proper place, we need to acknowledge... And we need to understand that Abraham was both sinfully flawed and that he was the chosen prophet of God. Through Abraham, we see our need for a Messiah, right? Sinfully flawed. We're like him in that way. And through Abraham, the Messiah will come. So let's, let's go back real quick to Genesis chapter 12 and review all that we know about uh, Abraham. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll summarize it for you. We know that he's a, a Shemite. He's from Shem's line, one of Noah's sons. Uh, so the, the, the line of the promise. He's a Shemite. Then you go down through the line of Eber, from which we get the word the Hebrews from. And he began his life as a pagan somewhere near Babylon. In chapter 12 of Genesis, we learned he was also... This is important. He was called by the Lord to leave his home and go to the land that God would show him. And then when, you, when, he, when he's getting close to there, God makes him this promise. 
Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, he says to Abraham, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in those two verses, we really get a a tight summary of all the rest of Abraham's story. The, the, the following uh, several chapters, 13 chapters of Genesis. Again and again, we see God is the one doing the work. God will make Abraham a great nation from Abraham's offspring that God will send. God is the one who brings that offspring. God will bless Abraham. God will bless those who bless Abraham. God will curse those who dishonor Abraham. And in and through Abraham, God will bless all the nations of the earth. God is the one doing the work. God said it would be that way from the very beginning. Abraham is a conduit. So even when Abraham doubts, or when he's afraid, or when he's sinful, God remains faithful to his promises because his promises aren't just to Abraham, but to the whole world through Abraham. Think about it this way. The the pipes that bring the water to your home. Those are important pipes. But they are important because through those pipes come water. And that water is what you need to live. That water is the reason that you have those pipes to begin with. If you try to sustain yourself on the pipes alone, you'll break your teeth. And if something else came through those pipes, say bleach, came into your home through those pipes, well, you wouldn't be as grateful. So it is with Abraham. The Messiah who blesses the nations comes through Abraham. Messiah is the water of life that we drink of and live eternally. Abraham is the conduit through whom the Messiah comes. And just as conduit or piping makes a pretty terrible substitute for water, Abraham makes a terrible substitute for a Messiah. And to drive this point home, Moses presents us here in Genesis chapter 20 with the original Sister Act part two, back in the habit. (laughs) Half of you were like, what's that? (laughs) You guys will will watch, we'll have a movie night, okay? And we'll we'll catch you up. (laughs) So we're getting getting a lot closer now to the long-awaited arrival of baby Isaac. We know from the Lord's words to Sarah from outside that tent back in chapter 18, that we're somewhere now in the timing here in Genesis chapter 20, we're somewhere within a year of Isaac's coming. The Lord has promised Abraham and Sarah, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. And this morning's text is after that episode. So we're within a year after that episode But it's before chapter 21 when Sarah conceives. So Sarah isn't pregnant yet, but she will be soon. So we're in that like probably just a couple months after the Lord has appeared to Abraham and made this this promise. And for whatever reason, uh, Abraham has decided, well, it's time time to move from Mamre down further south. Maybe it has something to do with grazing his sheep I don't know. We, we don't know. Maybe it has something to do with seeing 
uh, the site at Sodom and smelling the sulfur and saying, this isn't a good place to raise a family. I don't know. For whatever reason, he moves south. He's down uh, in the Negev in, an, in a place called Gerar. Verse 1 says he's moving there. Um, and then the fact that Abraham is still sojourning. So we see he's moving. And then it says he sojourned in Gerar there in verse 1. That's a reminder that the Lord has not fulfilled all of his promises yet. Abraham's still a sojourner. He doesn't own any land. So he's going from place to place, entrusting himself to the leaders and the the tribes of those regions, just hoping that they don't kill him. So he goes to Gerar, and immediately in verse 2, we see Abraham is up to his old act. He's going to pass Sarah off as his sister again. Now, if you weren't with us way back in Genesis chapter 12, um, let me catch you up a little bit. He's done this before. Last time we saw Abraham pull this stunt, he had his old name, Abram, and he was fairly new to following the Lord. And if you remember, there were two things that we took away as, as Christ followers. We took away these two things from that episode. When we saw this happen, we saw Abraham go, or Abram go down there to Egypt and pawn his wife off. The first thing we learned was that God had promised Abraham that he would protect him, And yet Abraham lived as if he didn't believe in God's promises. And the second thing that we learned was that if the whole story of redemption had been up to Abraham, it would have failed. The Bible would have stopped in Genesis chapter 12. Jesus would have never been born. We wouldn't have even gotten to Isaac. By extension, we also forget or we fail to believe God's promises. And, and, and also it's true that if our salvation was up to us, we wouldn't be saved either. So we learned that back in chapter 12. And if you, if you need to go back and listen to that sermon again, as I do often, um, not that I listen to my own preaching, but I need, that, that <laughs> I need those reminders uh, often that it is up to the Lord to sustain my salvation. Uh, but go back and listen to that if you need to. Genesis chapter 12, the, back in, I don't remember when. You can find it on the website. Either way, uh, since then, since we've gone past that, we've noticed that those lessons have been a steady theme in Genesis. Abraham, again and again, has given, been given by the Lord every reason to trust in the Lord. But again and again, Abraham shows that oftentimes he doesn't trust God. And again and again, we have seen that God's plan of redemption is dependent on God alone and not on Abraham. And here, just as in Egypt, so here in Gerar, we have those same lessons. Same lessons here in in Gerar. If redemptive history were left to Abraham... 90-year-old Sarah, a mere months away from receiving the fulfillment of God's promise, from receiving that child that she's been long waiting for. If it were up to Abraham, she would permanently become Abimelech's wife, and there would be no Isaac, no Jacob. The Bible would end this time in Genesis chapter 20. But of course, God is sovereign in every way over this situation. 
What Abraham means for evil, God means for good. So God interferes again in human history. He saves the day and by a 3,000-year extension, you and me. Genesis 20 is very, very much like Genesis chapter 12 in Egypt. So much like it, in fact, that the author, Moses, led by the Holy Spirit, seems to be intentionally drawing our eyes to that comparison. This is not an accidental repeat event. And when we put these stories side by side, when we compare them, we find that this time the point of the story is not the same, even though Abraham's sins are the same. The first major difference between the two stories is all that has taken place since Genesis chapter 12 in that episode in Egypt. So not only has God promised an offspring to both Abraham and Sarah, He's also given a very specific timeline in which that child would arrive. The baby whose name will be Isaac is to arrive within that year. And Abraham has been assured of this twice by a physical visit from the Lord. He's seen the Lord. He sat down and had a meal with the Lord. And then he saw that spectacular display of God's power in Genesis chapter 19. So Abraham and Sarah now, in Genesis chapter 20, have more information than they did in Genesis chapter 12. They have more of a a tangible, specific hope now than they did when they were in Egypt. And that makes this episode all the more shocking, doesn't it? And just a quick note on that by, by way of application for our own hearts. I've said this before. But this really does highlight the reality that our sin problem is not an information problem. It's not a knowledge problem. Abraham has far more knowledge now than he did in chapter 12. Decades more. But his heart is still the same. And so we need to remember this as we do ministry together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So whether you're teaching a Sunday school or leading a discipleship group or a Bible study, we need to remember that our problem is not fundamentally a lack of knowledge, trivia, data. So the solution to our problem is not then, well then, let's fill our minds with knowledge. That's not the solution. Our problem is our sinful hearts. And they need to be changed. It's not to say that Bible knowledge is bad. It's good. But don't think that if someone is struggling with a sin issue, that if you just tell them a bunch of stuff, that it will fix it. It won't. We see that with Abraham. Well, another difference between chapter 12 and chapter 20 is the age of Sarah. And I know you're you're wondering if he's going to talk about this. Yes, I feel like I have to. In the Egypt episode, Sarah was somewhere around 65, maybe 67 years old. Now she's 90. Which, of course, raises questions about Abimelech's taste in women. (laughs) I knew you were asking that question. (laughs) Well, there's two theories that, that, that just to kind of parenthetical, this is not the point of the message or or the text. Moses is like, why why do you care? Like, well, we care. So there's two theories about what's happening here. In this story, maybe, maybe both of these theories are true. The first is that in God's miraculous preparation of Sarah's conception, he has 
reversed her aging. And this, this theory goes way back to the church fathers. Somehow, uh, God has reversed Sarah's aging, and so she appears now vibrant and flowering and youthful despite her, her age. Certainly possible. The second theory is that Abraham is coming in to the, to the land. Wherever he went, he, he goes in with all of his people. And it's not just Abraham and Sarah, right? He, he goes in with all of his people, all of his wealth, all of his livestock. And remember that 300 plus standing army that he had? Those guys are with him too. And that might appear threatening to a, 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 a tribal leader or, or a king of an area. It might be threatening to Abimelech, and it could have triggered a military conflict. Culturally, it was expected that some sort of political marriage could, could arrange for peace. And we actually see this happening later on in the scriptures when Solomon is king 500 years later. Most of his marriages and, and, and concubines were politically motivated arrangements. Well, it seems here that maybe, maybe it's the case that Abraham understands ancient Near Eastern diplomacy. And so he offers his wife, who technically is also his half-sister, in order to bring this peace about. And that's kind of how he's stayed alive uh, wherever he goes. Maybe that's true. Maybe both of these theories are true. Maybe it's something else altogether. Either way, Moses doesn't tell us the specifics, but Abimelech takes the bait. Much like Pharaoh did back in chapter 12 in Egypt. But then, and then, then we see something totally different. Something, an event happens that is totally unlike what occurred in Egypt. And this major difference, because it is such a difference, stands out. And so I believe this is where we begin to see the point of chapter 20. And here it is. In verse 3, God visits Abimelech in a dream. Now, Pharaoh, back in chapter 12, was not afforded this, this privilege. The Lord simply afflicted Pharaoh and his whole household with what, what the Bible says are great plagues, mighty plagues. It's not what happens in Gerar here in chapter 20. God visits Abimelech. Now, why is this important? So far, this has not happened yet in the Bible for anybody outside the line of promise. And on a whole, if you read all of Scripture, visits from God are very rare in the Bible. Very few people are given this privilege. And when they are, those people are often called prophets. So already... If you are an Israelite who first received Genesis from Moses, and you're reading this, you would recognize this is unusual. Abimelech, we will learn in a few chapters, is a Philistine. So here we have an uncircumcised Philistine, a man outside of the covenant of Abraham, a Gentile, a representative of the nations, and Abraham's God, Israel's God, is speaking to him. Personally. And this tells us, as we're, as we're starting to get a sense of God's plan as we unfold the scripture, the, the, God's plan of redemption, this tells us that the Lord already has a heart for the nations. 
already has a heart for the nations. Coming right after that episode in Sodom, that might be a little bit surprising. But I think that's intentional, that juxtaposition of Sodom, God judging the nations, and then Abimelech, God coming personally to the one who represents the nations. It's intentional. Now, granted, what God says to Abimelech doesn't sound like good news, does it? Look at verse 3. Behold, you're a dead man. Now, this is the only time this occurs in the Bible. No one else gets God saying that to them. Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman who you have taken, for she is a man's wife. He's saying, look, you're committing adultery. The penalty for adultery is death. You're going to die. This is not good news. Not at first glance. But again, we've got to compare this to Pharaoh. Remember, we're, we're holding chapter 12 and chapter 20 side by side. Pharaoh did not receive a warning like this. It's far better. It's far better to hear the word of God spoken to you. It is far better to read the word of God and to be corrected and rebuked than it is to have God be silent and to leave you in your sin. In Romans 1, people are turned over to their sin. Paul says God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity. And God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And verse 28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. It is an awful thing. It is an awful thing to be given over into your sin. God did not give Abimelech up. God came to him in a dream and warned him. So so by way of application for you, let me just bring this home. If you're caught in some sin and a brother or sister in Christ corrects you or rebukes you with the word of God, they're not doing that because they hate you. Rather, they're doing that because they love you. To, to let you stay in your sin, to say, well, you know, I don't want to talk to them about that. I, I, don't, I don't want to hurt their feelings. That is hatred in its most insidious form. So God is showing mercy to Abimelech here when he gives him this warning, even if the warning sounds harsh. And then surprisingly, on top of that, God allows Abimelech to talk back to him and defend himself. Look at verse 4. Now, Abimelech had not approached her. So that's the, the all-knowing third-person view of this. Our, our narrator knows Abimelech's not done anything. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? And then he defends himself. You know, he says, they're the ones who lied to me. Now, what does this sound like? This sounds like, just a couple chapters ago, Abraham's words when he was pleading with God not to destroy the cities in the valley if God found ten righteous there. You remember that? Look back at uh, chapter 18, verse 23. might even be on the same page of your Bible. Then Abraham drew near to God and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? You see the similarities between those two comments? Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Is what Abimelech says. He's calling upon the justice of God. And, and, And going back to chapter 18, Abraham says, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Again, calling upon the justice of God. 
And then in chapter 18, we saw that back and forth discussion between Abraham and the Lord. And in the end, the Lord saves Lot and destroys those cities in chapter 19. And and Moses says, God destroyed the cities of the valley, but he remembered Abraham and sent Lot out. So in other words, Abraham's prayers from chapter 18 were answered when Lot was saved. God saved Lot because of Abraham's intercession. And so we know that, and we're going into this, and we're saying, okay, will God save Abimelech? Because Abimelech is praying essentially the same thing. So here God is threatening to judge Abimelech for his sin, and Abimelech is arguing with a logic very similar to Abraham's, and we might expect God to say, because we've read chapter 18, we might expect God to say, okay, you're right, Abimelech, you're innocent. I won't kill you, and I won't destroy your nation. But he doesn't say that. Look at verse 6. Then God just said to him in a dream, Yes, I know you've done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. That's the first lesson that Abimelech gets from God. Essentially, you're right, you are innocent. Because of me. This, and this is kind of a shocking statement, isn't it? Have you thought about this before? When we think about God's sovereignty, we all would mostly agree that God is sovereign over storms and earthquakes and illnesses. And then some of us, depending on if you believe what the Bible says, some of us would say that God is also sovereign over the means of salvation and matters of salvation. But few of us think about the reality that God is also sovereign over the hearts of kings. And yet God is sovereign over the hearts of kings. Proverbs tells us this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21.1. And so here the Lord is turning Abimelech's heart away from sin. The Lord keeps Abimelech from sinning against him. The flip side of this happens in the Exodus. When Israel is down in Egypt again, and the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. All that to say, Abimelech's purity here is not to his credit, but to God's. The Lord is telling Abimelech, you can make an argument for your innocence, but you really don't have a defense. If I had not restrained you, you would have sinned. And all of that is a setup for the second lesson that we find in verse 7. Now then, return the man's wife. Look at this. For he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, no, you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So he's saying here, the second lesson, you can plead with me all you want. But you've got to go through Abraham to do it. Because he's my prophet. He's the one that will represent you before me. Now this is kind of shocking. Abraham 
has very clearly just acted the fool, hasn't he? He's proven himself to be a liar and a schemer. He's more interested in preserving his own life than his wife's. He's not trusting the Lord. He's putting the promise of the offspring, the promise that is, that is now so near we can almost hold the baby. He's putting Isaac at risk. And we could go on and on counting this prophet's sins. Meanwhile, the Gentile uncircumcised Philistine is the one who fears the Lord. Look at verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning. Now, if you, that's, that's not accidental. If you read through your entire Bible, you're going to find a small handful of people who rise early in the morning. And all of them do so in response to the Lord. That is pointing to the reality that Abimelech fears the Lord. So Abimelech rose early in the morning. He calls all his servants and he told them everything. And the men were very afraid. So Abimelech is taking seriously the words of God. He values the words of God. He's more interested in telling his men the words of God than in protecting his own reputation. Right? He's just been totally hoodwinked by a foreigner. But his interest in in communicating God's word is above, that's more important to him than the embarrassment that he's just experienced. And then because of Abimelech's influence over his men, the men of the household also fear God. And so we're supposed to see here on balance, Abimelech is a pretty good guy. But his apparent goodness is from God. But because of who Abimelech really is, his external goodness, even his integrity, is not enough to spare him from God's judgment. So God tells him, if you want your life spared, you've got to go through my guy, my chosen mediator, my prophet, Abraham. This king... And the nation that he represents can only be protected from God's wrath if Abraham, the selfish and cowardly liar, prays for them. Or to put it another way, God's mercy will only come to this nation through this sinful mediator. This is kind of unsettling, isn't it? And I think that's the point. If we read Genesis canonically, if we read it in the context of all of Scripture... We're supposed to see Abraham is an imperfect mediator. Why? So we would anticipate and look forward to the perfect mediator. God himself. The man, Christ Jesus. See, Abraham's blessing to the nations is real. God promised Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. And so he does. And we're going to see that in Genesis. But Abraham's blessing is Flawed. It is incomplete. It is fleshly. Abraham's blessing to, to Abimelech's nation is mixed with lying and cheating and adultery and doubt and excuses and failure. But it's still a blessing. God's promise to bless the nations is fulfilled partially in Abraham, but it is fulfilled fully through Abraham. Why? Because Abraham is conduit. He's not the promise. He is the one through whom the promise comes. 
through Abraham, that offspring will come. And through the promised offspring, the blessing to the nations will be perfect. Abraham's the conduit. Abraham is the one through whom the nations will be blessed. But Abimelech doesn't know that yet, does he? All he knows is God told him to seek out this prophet. And so that's what God-fearing Abimelech does. He obeys God. He goes to Abraham to make his case. So the first thing he does when he gets to Abraham is to question Abraham. Look at verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham to, and said to him, What have you done to us? What did I do to you? How, how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my whole kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. Now, this is interesting. Those first few questions I get. All right, what did I do to you? We're, we're, we're still in a time, though, in, in redemptive history. So we haven't gotten to Exodus yet. We're still at a time in history where the law of God has not yet been revealed. And yet Abimelech makes appeals to a, a common moral code when he speaks to Abraham. Look what he says. You have done th- things to me that ought not to be done. What does ought mean? That means there, there's a standard that we're referring to here. And what standard is Abimelech referring to? I think he's appealing to the standard that God set up in Genesis 1 and 2 when he created marriage. It's been an ongoing theme in Genesis. Marriage is the one flesh union for a lifetime between a man and a woman. And so adultery is a sin against God. God created it. You break it. You're sinning against God. Abimelech understands this. And he knows, as God told him, that to violate this sacred institution is to sin against God. Look at verse 6. Back at verse 6. God says, I kept you from sinning against me. Not against Abraham, but against me. God is saying, I kept you from sinning against me. So he's appealing to that, that, that higher moral code that it seems that Abraham and Abimelech both should understand. But recognize again, this is the uncircumcised Philistine pointing God's prophet to the higher moral truth. There's some irony here, isn't there? But Abimelech does this not in a way that is disrespectful. He does it in a way that maintains respect towards Abraham. He honors Abraham in his position as God's prophet. Look at verse 10. It says, since you are a prophet of God, surely there must have been something that led you to do this. Right? Look at verse 10. He says, what did you see that you did this? That's, a, that's a, something about prophets. Prophets are seers. And so Abimelech asked the prophet, Prophet, what did you see? And, wh- and what we see here is Abimelech is still trusting that God's man knows what he's doing. So he's humbling himself before Abraham and saying, Look, I feel like we're, we're good. I feel like I have not done anything wrong. But you're the prophet. Maybe you in your Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom saw something in our nation that would deserve such a judgment. Abimelech is trusting God. He's trusting God's man. Turns out, well, maybe he had too high of an opinion of Abraham. Look at Abraham's explanation. Abraham didn't see anything. Verse 11. I did it because I thought. But he did Not because I saw, but because I thought. I had these assumptions I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. 
Now, was Abraham right about this? No, he wasn't. Abraham thought there was no fear of God in Gerar, and yet, as it turns out, this king fears God, at least in this episode, more than Abraham. So the prophet's thoughts were wrong. And based on his wrong observation, he said, and they'll kill me because of my wife, and then he goes back to his old uh, plan. And this is when Abraham really starts to fall apart. He slips into a way of reasoning known as casuistry, or you could call it lawyer talk, or acting like a Jesuit. Look at verse 12. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Starting to sound like that I am my own grandpa song. (laughs) So he's saying technically she is my sister. And even if this is true, it doesn't excuse Abraham's behavior, does it? All it does is make him look petty because he's still his wife. And then it gets worse. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, now he's sounding like Adam. Remember remember back in the garden, Lord, the woman you gave me took of the tree and gave it to me and I ate. That's the gist here. Abraham has has those same blame-shifting instincts as old Adam did. Abraham is of Adam. This is is God's fault. God caused me to wander. He's the one that, this is all his idea. I, I didn't really have anything to do with it. And he's also like Adam in that he's a pretty rotten husband. Look at the way that Abraham asks his wife to love him. Second part of verse 13. I have said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place in which we come, save me, he's my brother. Now that word that we translate kindness there, in verse 13, some of your translations say love. It's from the Hebrew word hesed. And some of you might have heard that. Oh, you're nodding your heads. Yeah, I've heard that word hesed before. That hesed, we, we translate God's loving mercy toward Israel. That's hesed. Abraham is admitting as if it's totally normal, that he demanded his wife show her, her, her love to him by lying wherever they go and saying, he's my brother. And so yet again, we're seeing Abraham is like Adam. He is of Adam. Abraham is not the long-awaited one. He's just the one through whom the promised offspring comes. The offspring, though, That promised offspring is different. The promised one loved his wife, the church, in this way. Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's how the offspring, Christ, loves his wife, the church sacrificially. Abraham loves his wife in this way. Everywhere he went, he demanded she show her love for him by giving herself up for him that his life might be preserved. So husbands, as Paul teaches us, love your wives like Jesus, love the church. And as Moses teaches us, not like Abraham loved his wife. Amen. Well, Abimelech hears this response from Abraham. So Abraham has given his 
reasons, if, if you will. Abimelech hears this response, and what does he do? And you might expect him to go, like, listen to this, and then go back to God and say, are you sure I've got the right guy? <laughs> are you sure this Abraham guy is the prophet who's supposed to pray for me? Or is there another I should look for? Or maybe, and this, I think we should consider this as Christians when we think about our own witness to others. Because this is a reasonable response. Maybe he might say, if a prophet of God is this much of a hypocrite, maybe I should look for a different God. But yet again, Abimelech proves himself to be the more honorable one here. Despite the prophet's foibles, the good king obeys God. And he submits to the sinful prophet. And he offers him wealth. And he offers him land. If you you remember back in Egypt, Pharaoh just gave him the wealth. But really that was the bride price. He just sent Abraham and Sarah away as fast as he could. Get out of Egypt. Abimelech says, you represent the Lord. You are welcome here. Which shows that he's forgiven him, hasn't he? And then he also honors Sarah. Look at verse 16. To Sarah, he said, behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Now, this is important because of what's about to happen in chapter 21. All of this story, all of this story is anticipating the birth of Isaac who comes from God alone through Abraham and Sarah. So the Lord is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham and Sarah to bring them a son. And in order to prove that this child comes from God through the marriage of Abraham and Sarah, there's, there can be no doubts whatsoever that this is Abraham's child. So Abimelech, essentially in chapter 20, now has to be cleared from the paternity test. And that the, the proof then that he's cleared from the paternity test, I didn't touch her, here's a thousand pieces of silver to prove it, is what he's saying. And that prepares the way for chapter 21. But in the end, in the end of this chapter, look down at verse 17. Abraham does as Abimelech requested. He prays for Abimelech. That's what this is all about. Abraham sinning against Abimelech. Abimelech taking the bait. And then Abimelech needing the prayers of the intercessor. And Abraham obliges. He prays for Abimelech. Abimelech is healed of, of, of some the illness that the Lord had brought that prevents the conception of children. Uh, his wife is healed of the same illness. All of the servants of his household are healed of that same illness. And God brings children to the house of Abimelech. Shows a reversal of the curse. A blessing is brought to Abimelech. And God, God does that through the prayers of Abraham. Now, if this story were all by itself, it would be confusing. But because it's in the context of the whole Abraham story, and because that story is about to climax with the the birth of Isaac, what we're seeing here is that Abraham himself, as, as, as a human, Abraham is not God's ultimate plan to bless the nations. Abraham 
by Abimelech's own witness, makes a lousy blessing. He's the conduit through whom the nations are blessed by the offspring. This story shows us Abraham's sinfulness and his importance as the only mediator that humanity has at this point in redemptive history. And so we are presented with this desperate need for a better mediator. Which is why the story of Abraham doesn't end in chapter 20. The whole point is that God is bringing an offspring who is the better mediator. And this offspring is the next in the line of the promise. Through this offspring, all the way down the line comes the promise of the one who will free us from our bondage to sin and present us blameless before God. Jesus is that mediator. Jesus Christ is the offspring. Jesus Christ comes through Abraham. So there's two, two takeaways as we, as we finish our time this morning. And, and, and as we have done throughout Genesis, we have, have um, tried to identify ourselves, ourselves with a, a character in the story. Not because we are that character, but because, but because there's a lesson for us that the Lord has. So if we identify ourselves with Abimelech here, because we're Gentiles, we're, we're, of, we're of the nations... There's two things that as Christians now, I think we need to see. The first is that some of you have had Abraham-like people present the things of the Lord to you. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home, but your parents were total hypocrites. Maybe you've had a pastor who was, who was like Abraham or, or, or a youth pastor. So, someone who was supposed to be representing God to you and they sinned against you or they, they failed in such a way that it led you to serious doubts about Christianity. That person who hurt you or lied to you or failed that person is not Jesus. That person shows you our need for Jesus Christ. Just as Abraham shows the need for a true and better mediator, whoever that is in your life that was like acting like Abraham, they show you our need for Jesus Christ. So be comforted by the fact that Christ's representatives are sinful Flawed human beings. Get to know me and you will find that out very quickly. We are people who need Christ. And though they may have failed you, Jesus Christ never will. The second thing I want us to see here is that just as Abimelech did, you need a mediator. An intercessor. As good as Abimelech was, from a worldly perspective, I mean, we read this and say, this is a decent, God-fearing man. But God himself told him, Abimelech was under the judgment of God because of his sin nature. And so even Abimelech needed the chosen one of God to intercede for him to plead his case. You and I have that intercessor. You and I have that mediator 
we have Jesus Christ. So if your faith is in Christ, then you are justified before God, and Christ is your eternal intercessor. See, Abraham died. He's going to die in just a few chapters. But Christ died and rose and now stands before God eternally. He ever lives and pleads for you. He will always be before God, and he will never leave you or forsake you. Amen? Let's thank him.